This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you will turn in your Bibles this evening to Isaiah chapter 52, I will begin reading in chapter 52, verse 13, and we'll continue on through the entirety of chapter 53. We see in Isaiah one of the most clear, most explicit, most detailed, most beautiful, and most terrible accounts of the suffering of our Lord that we see, not just in the Old Testament as a prophecy, but in all of Scripture, and that is the text on which we will reflect this evening. So this is Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told, them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, bu- he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts by your spirit to receive the the power and the glory of that text which we have just read as we see in it uh, such great sorrow, such great suffering, such great pain and loss, and yet we also see such great love such great mercy, and such great power. Pray that you would write this gospel freshly on our hearts, that we would know it, be confident in it, that we would rest in it, and that we would also take it to a world that needs to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do come tonight on this Good Friday this Friday of the Passover week, uh, the day of the anniversary, if you will, of the night of which our Lord Jesus Christ, the day on which our Lord Jesus Christ died. It is common in many evangelical churches, particularly as the theology of many of those churches leans towards various sorts of Arminianism to dwell on Jesus' suffering on the cross as some tragic and evil act against a man who was a helpless victim. Now, there are aspects of this that are true. The condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, those were evil acts by evil men who had essentially conspired to murder an innocent man. He had done nothing worthy of death. He was brought forth on false charges and false pretenses. The leaders of the Jews, the priests and the Pharisees, they brought Jesus before the Roman authorities on a charge of sedition, of wanting to overthrow the Roman government and usurp Caesar. They used Christ's claims of kingship against him. They twisted his words for their evil purposes. But what is often neglected in these reflections on Christ's death, is that though this was in fact an evil and sinful act by evil men, and those men were responsible, this was an act that happened according to the definite plan and purpose of God. We see this clearly in Jesus' own words. For instance, in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, Jesus says there, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus laid down his life according to the Father's plan, but also according to his own will. 
And this is because there is unity in the divine will of God, in the triune will of God. According to Christ's divine will, which was in perfect union with the Father's will, He willingly suffers and dies in the place of the people that the Father has elected unto everlasting life. But it is not only in Jesus' words that we see the definite plan and purpose of God that Jesus would undergo this suffering at the hands of evil men to purchase the redemption of His people. We also see this in this passage we read tonight. Given over 600 years in advance to the prophet Isaiah. Where we see in this explicit and gory and yet beautiful detail how and what Christ will suffer as a part of God's plan. In fact, it was always God's plan. It appeared in the first chapters of the Bible, clear back in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall when sin entered into the world and all life and all hope seemed lost, one was promised to the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And it is by this suffering of the cross that the serpent's head was crushed. Isaiah describes the suffering of Christ so vividly even at times using the past tense as though it has already happened and as if he, though over 600 years before, was right there. In a spiritual sense, as a part of the people of God, Isaiah and all the saints of old were there, just as we are there in our union with Christ, in which we have the hope of our salvation So I want us to meditate on this text in Isaiah tonight in four brief points. First, we will look at the servant's reputation. This is the verses in chapter 52, and then continuing into chapter 53 through verse 4. We see here something of a paradox, something of irony. We see this servant having no reputation, and yet the greatest reputation. Second, we see the servant's redemption in verse 5 through the first part of verse 10. What did the servant accomplish for us? And then third and finally, sorry, there's actually three points, not four. The servant's resurrection in the end of verse 10 and then through the end of the chapter. What happens after the servant's suffering? So again, We have the servant's reputation, redemption, and resurrection. It is a very high-level survey of a very beautiful and very deep and very vital text to the message of Scripture, but I will try my best to do it justice in the brief time we have tonight. So first we will look at the servant's reputation, starting in chapter 52, verse 13, and then continuing to the start of chapter 53. So here we are introduced to the servant. Now many times in the book of Isaiah, God gives to Isaiah prophecies concerning this servant, one who is to come. He will come for the aid and for the assistance of God's people. Now this is in a context where Isaiah is writing, where he is dealing with a small but faithful remnant of Israel as they are about to go into exile. 
He is writing to give them hope beyond the land, hope beyond their earthly king and kingdom, hope beyond their temple, as all of those things are about to be taken. As I said, we, we see here something of an irony. We see something of a paradox in how the servant is spoken of here. On the one hand, he is the man of no reputation. By worldly metrics, he is somewhere between obscure and unknown and something hated and despised. And yet he is a man of great reputation, which we see in these verses of chapter 52. We are told at the beginning that the servant will deal wisely. He will deal prudently. And he will be exalted and extolled and very high. In this, he sounds like this man of great reputation. Maybe something of a philosopher king who is both wise and powerful. You could think of other biblical figures that this could call to mind. You could think of David the great king and poet, or Solomon, the great king and writer of great books of wisdom. Even in Isaiah's day, they had Hezekiah. He was a great king who brought both spiritual and political renewal to Israel. Of course, these men also all had their great shortcomings. David had his great and nearly undoing sin with Bathsheba, or even he, the man after God's own heart, was given over to gross sin and terrible misdeeds and terrible actions. Solomon was led astray, was led into idolatry by his many wives. Hezekiah's reign went great early on, but after a miraculous healing and extension of his life, he ends up helping to pave the way for the kingdom going into the hands of Babylon. So this servant that Isaiah describes is initially presented as one great, and yet the means by which he is accounted great are actually quite terrible. Not terrible because of sin, as could be said of these other kings, but terrible because it consists of great and terrible and brutal suffering. In verse 14, we see that the people are astonished at the servant because he is marred. He is wounded. He is brutalized beyond recognition. That's not typically the recipe for wisdom or exaltation. And yet here we see it. But how? Continuing in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now sprinkling in the Old Testament, it was associated with cleansing with purification. There were various washings that went with the ceremonial law. And then most of all, the the most well-known of sprinkling rituals would have been the sprinkling of blood, most notably with the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. They would sprinkle blood on the altar, sprinkle blood on the people uh, to symbolize how their sins were to be washed away. This is why baptism by sprinkling is not only valid, but in itself a beautiful and powerful picture of Christ's atoning work. Though the servant is marred, what results is the marveling of kings as they comprehend knowledge and wisdom unknown, enough to silence them. The thing about earthly rulers, they're very image conscious. They tend not to be dumbfounded. 
They don't want to be caught with nothing to say. And they tend not to be silenced. But this servant silences the kings of the earth. Continuing on into chapter 53, we see in verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. We see here the servant's humiliation. We confessed earlier in our catechism about Christ's humiliation, how it consisted in his being born, that in a low condition, made under the law. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who had equal glory and honor and power with the Father, became a man. And not even an impressive man at that, by worldly standards. And he is treated like one so unimpressive in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we've been looking through the Gospel of John, we've seen some of the ways in which Jesus was despised and rejected. Just last week, we saw how his fans and his family and even one of his closest friends turned on him, forsook him, rejected him, did not regard him or his word or his works. The text says, we hid our faces from him. We were embarrassed at him. We did not esteem him. We did not give him the glory that he was due. And for this, Jesus experienced grief. And yet, another paradox in verse 4. In suffering his own grief, he bore our griefs. In experiencing sorrow, he carried our sorrows. Again, we see here this particular emphasis on Christ's passive obedience. His suffering as the payment of the penalty for our sins. He suffered the miseries of this fallen and sinful world to take away the miseries of the fall from his people. And yet even in this, he was not regarded. He was regarded as one stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is the beauty and brutality of this text and of our Lord's suffering, which it describes. He was everything that mankind needed, and mankind regarded him as nothing. He was the servant of no reputation, and yet the servant of greatest reputation. And yet after this, we come to our second point, the servant's redemption. In chapter 53, verse 5 through the first part of verse 10. This was not the servant's own redemption, for the servant was perfect and without sin, yet it was the redemption he accomplished for his people. In verse 5, we read that he was wounded for our transgressions. Not his own. He had no such transgressions for which to atone. Though he died a cursed death on a cross, one befitting a lawless man, Christ was the perfect law keeper, and he was the only one who ever lived. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was beaten, bloodied, whipped in such a way that the flesh was torn from his body. Again, not for any iniquities of his own. 
No, he did this for our iniquities. He took on chastisement for our peace. He faced abuse. He faced slander. He faced mistreatment. Again, for nothing he did or deserved. And yet we deserve all of that. We deserve chastisement. We deserve to be punished. But this servant takes it in our place. And by his stripes, we are healed. We deserve all the suffering and miseries of this life. We deserve sickness, death, poverty, affliction, all of the things that come as a result of sin and the fall. But the servant brings healing through his stripes, his wounds, his pain. He did this, again, not because we deserved this, even in our fallen sinful state, not because we wanted it. We've already seen in this text just how highly this servant was regarded. Verse 6 says that we like sheep have gone astray. We rebelled. We broke the law. We deserved to die. But the servant died in our place. We were sheep that deserved slaughter and we were on our way to it. But in verse 7, he, like a lamb, goes to slaughter for us. Silently, not resisting, not rebelling, not protesting. He had every reason to. He was an innocent man. I mentioned in a message last week how we love to turn into defense attorneys for ourselves when we are caught and confronted with sin. Jesus didn't do that, even though he would have been justified in doing so. When he was tried before this kangaroo court on false charges, he said very little in his defense. He suffered what we deserved in a way more noble and honorable than we ever would if we had to face the penalty ourselves. And he did this even unto death. In verse 8, we read that he was cut off from the land of the living. He died. In verse 9, he goes into the grave with the wicked. Christ died between two other criminals, thieves, rebels, the worst of the worst, and yet he even called one of them that very day unto salvation. Yet he was with the rich at his death. He was buried in the grave of a rich but devoted friend. Joseph of Arimathea, with the help of Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, who was once ashamed to even be publicly seen with Jesus. And again, all of this, all of this suffering and death and the things that come with it despite his innocence. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. Never even said anything wrong or dishonest. No deceit was found in his mouth. Why? Again, we could be inclined to approach this as a great evil, a great injustice to an innocent man, which again is true, but it's not the whole story. The ultimate reality is in the opening of verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. 
God willed this. The Son, according to His divine will, was in perfect agreement. And according to His human will, He submitted. He learned obedience. He underwent this suffering in our place. And He did this to purchase our redemption, our salvation. All the way to the cross, all the way to death, all the way to the grave. But that is not the end of the story. After the servant's reputation and the servant's redemption, we come to the servant's resurrection, starting in the end of verse, tw- verse 10. Isaiah foretells that death will not be the end for this servant. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. Now, Jesus Christ had no earthly children. There is no reason to think that he did, despite what popular fiction and the like may say. He died as an unmarried and childless man. This would be thought to be a cursed death in the ancient world. Not only to die a criminal's death, but to do so having no offspring, no one to carry on your name and your legacy. And yet Isaiah here describes the servant seeing his seed and prolonging his days. He will live and he will see children. Well, Jesus was resurrected. Upon his resurrection and ascension by his Holy Spirit, he founded the church at Pentecost. It is through that church that people become the children of God. And we see this work. We see this effort being successful. We see it being prosperous. And we see that the servant is satisfied. He is pleased with this. He is pleased with the redemption of his people. He is pleased with us. He freely justifies his people. His righteousness, his righteous living, his active obedience, and his passive obedience, his righteous suffering, They become the perfect righteousness that we, fallen sinners that we are, lacked, that we did not have and could not have on our own. That righteousness is imputed to us. It is credited to us. It becomes our righteousness. And so, Christ is pleased with us. God is pleased with us because of the servant's suffering. The servant bore our iniquities so that we bear them no more. And we, his church, his people, are his inheritance. We are his reward. This is what we see in verse 12. He gets a portion with the great. He gets a spoil. He gets a treasure. He gets a reward. He is now the king twice over. The king because he is God, and he is the king again of his people, the church, because he has won them by his redeeming work. This is the glory of the servant who suffered in our place. This is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we come together to remember, to commemorate on this night, that the perfect Son of God became a man, as Scripture foretold from the beginning, 
and in such beautiful and explicit detail to Isaiah. He suffered all these miseries. He underwent the very wrath of God that we deserved. But this is not just an abstract truth. It is a personal truth. He did this willingly for us, for his people, for his church, his bride, his inheritance. And he prevailed. Though he suffered and died, he was raised. And he has ascended into glory. And he ever lives to mediate for us, to make intercession for us. And one day he will return to take us where he has gone. The offer of the gospel this evening is that those who repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have this redeeming and atoning work that he has accomplished. They have all their sins washed away, as we sang a little bit ago. Their iniquities are laid on him, on his cross, and his righteousness becomes their righteousness, and they have the hope of eternal life and blessedness with him. And they will go to the place where he has gone. So is that you this evening? Do you believe this? Do you have this salvation? Do you have this hope? Do you have the righteousness of this suffering and saving servant? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this word of salvation, this word that tells us what it took to purchase our redemption, what your son Jesus Christ went through on our behalf, the righteousness that he had to fulfill through his righteous living and his righteous suffering. We thank you for the gospel that this righteousness can become our righteousness. And I pray that all here gathered tonight would know and believe and have confidence in this truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.